You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. World Talk Radio. How did we get this far into a discussion of Abraham Lincoln without asking if he was gay? I don't know. Well, well, hold on, please. We're just teasing the audience. We'll remedy that when we come back with Harold Holzer in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment, and yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard, and when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich with my guest Harold Holzer, author of Lincoln at Cooper Union, the speech that made Abraham Lincoln president. We have been talking about this speech in February of 1860 that introduced Lincoln to the New York audience, to the Eastern political elite, that established his position uh, or, or explained his position on the stopping the expansion of slavery, and that made him, for the first time, a, a viable candidate for the presidency in 1860. Harold, do you think it's possible something like that could happen today? Someone could make one speech that would elevate them so much in the public eye? That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I can think of occasions when the stakes were very high uh, for speeches. I think President Clinton's um, State of the Union message when the, uh, the, his personal scandal was at its peak, when his earlier um, denials had been disproven and he had admitted that he had not told the, the truth about it. That was a very high-stake speech. Um, John Kerry's convention speech when he accepted the nomination, and Al Gore's also. So I think the stage has to be set uh, with with uh, you know pervasive media attention. And I guess that was the case in a in a more primitive way in uh, in 1860 because the, uh, the 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 press was certainly there. 
and uh, the stakes were high for precisely that reason. So, yeah, I think it, it could be. It could happen again. They were, I, um, now, when I think about it, some of these, the ones you mentioned are fairly good examples, and some of the famous speeches that come to mind, uh, Nixon's Trekkers speech or going further back, Brian's Cross of Gold speech. Yeah. These are famous speeches, but everyone already knows those speakers when they started. They're already famous. Yeah, well, that that's true. You mean can it, Lincoln was certainly well known where he was. I mean, there is some exaggeration of the idea that he was quote unknown. He was just he was just unseen in the East. He hadn't been to New York. He'd never spoken in New York. And in those days, you know, you can't speak in Springfield and have it on Fox News uh, at the same time. Uh, you needed to show your face. You uh, mentioned the manuscript of the speech is missing. What's yeah. the story there? Missing and presumed dead. Well. Lincoln's genius was that he understood, um, as did others at the time, but Lincoln particularly, that he had two, that his speech had two audiences. One was the hearing audience, and one was the reading audience. Lincoln had to write in such a way that he would be able to read out loud and make the audience rise to its feet. But he also had to write seamlessly enough so that when the speech was reprinted, as he hoped it would be, it was read appreciatively all over the country. To make certain that this happened, he left a dinner in his honor after the speech. And Boy, he must have been a tired man. He got up early, put the finishing touches on the speech, took a tour of Broadway, a walking tour, had his picture taken, went back to the hotel, got his manuscript, took a streetcar to Cooper Union, gave this two-hour speech, sat there while there were more speeches, because in those days people didn't go out just for a two-hour speech. That was just the appetizer. The main courses were the other speeches. You had to give the people what they came out of their homes for, and it was a four-hour event. Then a dinner in his honor at a club in, in Greenwich Village, then back to the hotel, but not quite to the hotel. must have been 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night. Lincoln detours across City Hall Park, which still stands, uh, as it did then, and went up to the offices of the New York Tribune, where I suspect by pool arrangement they were doing the typesetting of the speech for all of the dailies. And he proofreads the speech, all 7,500 words against his manuscript, not once but twice, because he is determined to make sure that the transcription is perfect and that there are no flaws. He's seen his words distorted often enough, and he's seen the havoc that the Democratic newspapers played with his texts uh, or his, his, his uh, off-the-cuff speeches in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And after the second round of typesetting, as was common then in the newspaper's composing room, when a page of manuscript is perfectly in type, you let the paper fall to the floor so it can be swept out and not confuse matters and be part of the you know, the further composing process and typesetting process. So I suspect that Lincoln just let all 50 pages or so fall to the floor one by one when he was satisfied about the typesetting and with the rest of the stories of February 28th that were in the New York Tribune, they were swept away and eventually burned. So the good news is we can be fairly confident that the printed versions reflect what Lincoln wanted them to say. Yes, but we can also be equally confident that Lincoln kept revising. Yes, the New York Tribune version of February 28, 1860 is the, is the perfect version of the speech as it was read. When I printed the, uh, used the book, I did not use that version because Lincoln authorized and participated in the adaptation of the speech for a pamphlet after it was reprinted in the newspapers. After it came out as a pamphlet, 
his host wanted to do another pamphlet, um, a pamphlet version that would be more handsomely bound, would be more expensive looking, and would contain Lincoln's sources that he had used for his research. Um, so they called Lincoln up and they said, uh, can you send me your footnotes? And he said, you know, Lincoln was not a scholar, although he was scholarly. He was not a historian, although this speech was all about history. And when he was done, he was on to the next thing. So he said, I don't have any source notes. I didn't keep anything. I'm getting ready to do my next thing. He didn't say it that way, but that was the idea. So his young uh, hosts had to recreate his research. He gave them a couple of hints. There are references in the text. And they did the footnoting in this final version and also brought to his attention a couple of things he said that they thought weren't exactly accurate. And Lincoln acceded to their changes. We have correspondence in which he went back and forth and said, okay, I'll change this and I'll change this. Uh, thank you for pointing it out. So I used that version with his host's footnotes, and I inserted in it the only record we have it may not be accurate, but it's the only suggestion we have of how the audience reacted. Because the Democratic newspaper in town, the New York Herald, also printed the speech word for word, but they inserted audience reaction. Applause, cheers, cries out, and audiences were very participatory in those days. And I liked that, and I thought it belonged there, so I did this sort of hybrid amalgam edition for my book. So we have the words we know Lincoln approved, and we have as as at least one witness reports, the way people responded as he read the words. Exactly. It, it, well, I, I know all our listeners will want to take a look at this book and see what uh, what went behind, on behind the speech, what its content was, how it expressed Lincoln's views, and how it helped elevate him to the presidency. But, of course, uh, this is all matters of substance, and, and let's just get to the chase now. Was exactly. Enough, enough about the about facts. Let's That's right. Speculation. Let's get innuendo and, and uh, Character rumor. Sense. Yes, right. Why are people asking this question, and what's your take on the story? About Lincoln being gay? Yes. Well, um, I don't think it's... I, I really shouldn't say character assassination, because I think it comes out of... Um, this this sense that that people have had for generations that Lincoln belongs to everybody and everybody uh, identifies with Lincoln. In fact, the uh, the people who have advanced this theories are are gay and are scholars of of gay history. Um, You're referring to C. A. Tripp. C. A. Tripp and um, Larry Kramer, the, the head of ACT UP, the the the, the activist organization, the anti AIDS activist organization in New York who started this whole thing by saying years ago that he had discovered the long-lost love letters of Lincoln and his longtime roommate, uh, Joshua Speed, be, be under the floorboards of Speed's mansion. Um, so, I, and I, uh, by the way, he later admitted to me in a phone call that he made it up, but that's, uh, I said that was obvious for any of those who've, who've studied manuscripts, that uh, the idea that a manuscripts would survive under a floorboard in the South for 150 years was a little bit... Um, a, little, a little bit of a stretch, certainly. A stretch and, to begin As I recall, when, when he was floating that story that he had, one version was that he had Speed's diary, I believe. But whatever it was, Lev Letter's diary was under the floorboards. Right, and, and, and the universal reaction among everyone I heard was, that's fabulous. That's great. Let's see it, and we'll. we'll, we'll no, nobody took the bait of saying, "Oh, how awful." Uh, well, I tried desperately to reach him. I, mean, I know where he lives. I know people who live in his building. I, I I've met him. I've seen him, um, and I tried desperately 
to get in contact, and he wouldn't call me. And one day I was walking through the Metropolitan Museum um, on my way to lunch, and someone saw me in the elevator and said, you know, my uncle would love to talk to you. And I said, that's nice. Um, who's your uncle? And she said, Larry Kramer. And I said, really? I mean, we have a big group at the Met. We have 2,000 people. And um, eventually you meet everybody, find out that everybody, you know, it's like only three degrees of separation to the rest of the world. So I did have a chance to uh, talk to him about this. And he said, oh, that was just for consciousness raising. Uh, that wasn't real. Well, that, Which this... is what I suspected. And, you know, he didn't think there was anything wrong with saying that. He just he said he wanted to get people to think that it was possible. Well, I, I feel like a scoop here on Civil War Talk Radio. At least it is the first confirmation I've heard that, that absolutely proves it was uh, not true. But although well, if you've been you... holding your breath waiting for the diary and you're turning really blue, I think you can exhale now. I, I'm ready to exhale. I, I wasn't really expecting to find it out there. None of us were, but it's, it's good to have it confirmed. Uh, it, yeah, well, well he, I, I think he's even now admitted it in writing. At least I've seen it somewhere. So C.A. Tripp writes this book out of, I think, you know, here's how we understand Lincoln's compassion and his generosity and the beauty of his writing. He's, uh, it's sort of, I get, you know, in some academic circles it's called queer theory and, and if we can all love Lincoln, why can't we all love one another and respect one another and all of that stuff? So out of that premise, you take everything Lincoln ever said, every innuendo, every roommate, every bed sharing, uh, experience he had and turn it into an extension of what your preconceived notion is. And Lincoln becomes, you know, um, you know, becomes gay in the view of C.A. Tripp and those who agree with him. Even Jean Baker, a historian that we, that I know I have long respected, she's written wonderful biographies of Mary Lincoln and Adlai Stevenson and done wonderful work on the origins of the Republican Party, was convinced enough to write a, a, a forward to the book in which she said, this explains everything. This explains why Mary Lincoln was so unhappy, because uh, Abraham Lincoln wasn't really interested in her. But anyway, um, are we ready to deflate this story or not? I, I think, well, I think you, you've, you've touched on some of the reasons behind why people are raising it uh, so frequently. And it, it strikes me there's there's something in Lincoln's personality that does merit exploration. Uh, Frank Williams uh, wrote an essay once on the, the feminine side of Lincoln, not arguing that Lincoln was gay, but simply pointing out that many of Lincoln's virtues were not traditional masculine ones. And, and another person who's done really good work on that exact uh, theme that Frank Williams explored is William Lee Miller in his yes. Lincoln's Virtues. He, was, he points out that Lincoln was uh, sort of eschewed a lot of the frontier uh, virtues that were common, um, torturing animals, hunting, exactly. uh, that kind of sport. So he was, you know, listen, if, we, if this guy who was, who was different from any of his contemporaries, physically, emotionally, in terms of talent and compassion, and was not different as a child, I'd be very surprised. So, um, you know, the other speculation that, the one thing that C.A. Tripp says in his, uh, the, the, the gay book is that all of this can be understood about the, because Lincoln um, matured or went into puberty very early, and and youngsters who go into puberty very early are invariably have more homosexual experiences than uh, children who go into puberty late. And uh, uh, my cousin is an endocrinologist who's done a lot of work on on both um, aging men and women and and on 
prepubescent and pubescent men and women. And um, her contention, which makes good sense to me, because we sort of can trace this in our own family, is that puberty is, a, in a way, a cutoff of growth spurts, um, although sometimes they resume later. It inhibits growth spurts. And if you see really tall people, unless it's genetically uh, for foreordained. I mean, if you've got two people who are six foot three, they're going to probably have a six foot three or better baby. That usually the people who are really tall and, and grow taller than their peers are people who had late puberty. So that's just a medical counter to Mr. Tripp's speculation for which he has absolutely no evidence. No, and, and that kind of deterministic argument does sound suspicious to begin with. Yeah, but well, I thought I would add one of my own for the hopper. And, and I think it's, it's an interesting one. Um, let me suggest we only have a few minutes remaining. Um, Could I say one more thing about the gay story? Absolutely. I have just um, been reading through Doris Kearns Goodwin's um, uh, the, the galleys to her book on Abraham Lincoln, which will be coming out on October 25th. And I will say that in a very subtle but brilliant way and in stories that I've never read anywhere before, not about Abraham Lincoln, but about other people in his uh, era, famous people. She really reveals what the culture was like in terms of the way men referred to each other in very intimate, endearing, almost physical terms. And I think this this book, and I have only read a third of it, but I think um, it's going to provide a very powerful answer that we all will be quoting um, in the future. Um, I don't want to say any more than that because she didn't say I could, but... Look to that book, which is sure to be very widely reviewed in late October, early November, well, for I, some startling um, revelations. Well, I know we'll all look forward very much to that. In, in late 2005, we'll be seeing Doris Kearns Goodwin's work there. Now, the the idea that men referred to one another, interacted with one another differently than they do today, uh, is certainly to the historian not news, but it it does add an element of historical context to this argument that really has not been there. The, the, it was pointed out in one review that even the word homosexual did not come into usage until after Lincoln's death. Exactly. It was a, it's, it's not a 19th century term, really. Nor a concept, even. And thus, using it to apply to 19th century figures, early 19th century figures, really misstates things. People did not, did not define themselves in the same way. In exactly. Way. Well, I would love to ask you what you think of Mary Lincoln. I would love to ask you how uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin has overcome uh, issues in the production of her Lincoln book, although I should ask her that maybe instead of you. Yeah. I would love to talk at great length more about Lincoln iconography, a subject we didn't even touch on today, of which you are the acknowledged leading scholar, and yet we're out of time. You'll, have, you'll be compelled to have me back. I certainly will. I want to thank our guest today, Harold Holzer, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art and noted Lincoln Scholar, winner of the 2005 Lincoln Prize. We hope to have him back sometime soon. Thanks, Harold. Jerry, thanks for having me. This is Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk.